0: I'm here with Shilpa. In fact, why don't I just get you to introduce yourself? Okay. Do you want all my names? <laughs> all of your names. Maybe not all of them. <laughs> um,
1: my name is Shilpa T. Highland and I am a Glasgow based
0: director. What else do you want to know? Um, your star sign, your favourite colour? No. I'm a Pisces. <laughs> I don't know if that's um, I don't know what that means. Like what? what I think it, I think for? it means
1: I'm disorganised and creative or something like that. But I think I'm quite an organised Pisces. Definitely
0: say you're organised. My bedroom's not very tidy. But Far uh, <laughs> from that. Um, so, how, what have you got going on at the moment, at Shilpa? What's happening with you? So, currently, I'm doing lots
1: of admin. <laughs> it's real fun. So, doing lots of admin and seeing lots of pandas. Uh, but the next thing that I'm working on is I am directing a production of Miss Julie at Perth Theatre. Um, so that starts rehearsing in January, which is alarmingly soon. <laughs> <laughs> That's very exciting. Yeah, and then working on other bits and pieces. So we just, uh, I just did a development reading fairly recently. It feels recent still. Um, of a play called History of a Life, although it's actually, do you know what? It's not called History of a Life anymore. It's, oh, now, it's now just called Roxana. <laughs> oh, cool. Um, as of 20 minutes ago when I met the writer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. This is the kind of live and in the moment uh, podcasting. This is exciting. That, as it gets. <laughs> yeah, we are yeah on the pulse here at Persistent and Nasty. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, how was that process for you? Mm-hmm.
1: Um it was good. It was um it was really nice to do the work in progress. Um so the, the play is written by a writer called Laurie Motherwell, uh, and I asked him to adapt uh Daniel Defoe morality novel called Roxana from seventeen twenty-four. Mm. Um, uh, we met through the Tron One Hundred Club, is that what it was called? Hi. Um, Tron, Tron
0: One Hundred? Yeah, that was a thing. Yeah, that, Not was, that, that was a thing. <laughs> But it was a thing.
1: And he... So he wrote the first 15 minutes of it um, uh, for the, that festival, and that was about two and a half years ago. And it was quite kind of fortuitous uh, in that we both um, didn't know each other's work particularly, but just decided to do this thing to see what it was like, um, and then enjoyed the process. So he has kept writing, and there's now a whole 90 minutes of it. <laughs> So, yeah, so the the development process was really useful. Um, We had three great actors, um, and we were. It's a a play that felt very relevant at the time that I asked him to do it, and I think, really depressingly, feels more relevant rather than less relevant now. Yeah. For something that is is dealing with the story of two women from 1724. (laughs) We keep getting fresh perspectives on things, or the story sounds slightly different to our ears, depending on what's going on in the world in any given week. So, for example, the week that we did been reading the um, Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh—I've never said that out loud. Kavanaugh, yeah. Kavanaugh. Yeah. I just said it weird. No, no.
0: <laughs> Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh.
1: I need the American accent. Um, but that trial was taking place. Um, which suddenly made the, the whole of our play feel more like a trial than it normally does. And yeah. it, that, you know, that's not necessarily how it will end up, but it's been useful and depressing. That For me, anyway, it feels like as that text grows or is developed, it's constantly in conversation with what we're living through at the moment. Um, yeah. I and
0: I hope that's what other people see <laughs> well, when they look at it, but... Yeah. Uh, as you know, I was at the meeting and I spoke to you and Laurie and a bunch of other people afterwards because there was a lot of chat in the bar, particularly about that, about the relevance of it, because that was the week of all of that horrendous mm-hmm. Kavanaugh hearing stuff and how the play resonated. And But then that got me talking with people about how scary it is that uh, an adaptation of something that was written so long ago still has yeah. resonant themes for what's going on primarily for women but generally in terms of oppressed groups yeah Uh, yeah those themes and topics are still prescient yeah in something 1724 did you say? 1724 yeah that's a bit scary isn't it yeah
1: and it's I think a lot of that is to do with the uh, what originally appealed to me about the novel is the uh, the process of story of, of a woman telling her story albeit through the writing of man Um, and that has its own issues, because obviously it's also a man that maybe was vaguely ahead of his times for 1724, but that's not very very ahead. (laughs) Um, Despite who it is written by, I think that she as a character has a really interesting relationship to owning her own story, Mm. Um, and that has, uh, for me then, an interesting resonance with the fact that the the original novel was re-edited by different publishers, in the subsequent years to give it a more moralistic ending than than the had given it originally. Um, So I think, I guess, because it's quite old and because some things have thankfully changed, um, it allows us to have quite a lot of licence to to draw it out and, uh, I guess, resituate it for now. Mm -hmm. Um, But all those questions about how women's actions are judged and having ownership of your story and uh, the sort of veracity of your story being questioned. I think it also is interesting to me in terms of what kinds of women we're allowed to portray in the stories that we tell. Mm. Because Roxana's is a horrible person yeah. in many, many ways. Um, she's a morally dubious person. She does some pretty unforgivable things.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but she should be allowed to tell her story the way that she wants to tell her story. Yeah. And she has an interesting relationship with with accepting that there's cause and effect and that she might come to a terrible end because she's done terrible things. Mm. But that's not the same as being morally submitted by God or the powers that be.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I'm also interested, um, always very interested, in the idea of female protagonists, how they're portrayed, and... And the idea that she—I kind of—I love the fact that she was morally dubious and ambitious and just like an awful person—and didn't let anything get in the way of what she, where she wanted to be, yeah, how she, how she got the things that she wanted—and we're so often presented with male characters who do that as standard, and then they're either rogues or. Heroes or you know yes. sort of lovable bad guys or whatever, but women very rarely get to inhabit that. Yeah. Um. And, and I don't know. I mean, I don't know how in 1724 how that was received. Yeah. But certainly now I, I didn't mind that. In fact, it's nice to see that in yeah. a in a in a female lead
1: yeah.
0: in a story. No, and I'm, I mean yeah, I think
1: I'm sure in 1724 she was. Just scandalous, yeah, and entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is—it is interesting that because I think maybe because you're used to having to defend female characters, um, that it's easy to preempt that and then feel like I don't know. I think it can be quite a scary thing to put a, a bad or a, a morally dubious female character into a story um, in a way that, yeah, like you said, there's there's plenty of male ones. Yeah, um, but. Yeah, I don't know, there's a, a tensiveness about it.
0: Right? Yeah, though, yeah, there definitely is, this idea that women... People can't accept a female character if she is unlikable. Mm-hmm. I feel like that comes up a lot. Like, the yeah. idea that, well, I don't, don't really like her, she's she's this or she's that, or she's, mm-hmm. like... She's shrill, or she's, she's a bit bossy, well, That's people true, like that. You know, whatever it may be. And, yes, yeah. you know, the... History of a Life. Roxana aside, like yes, she's just very morally, morally, questionable. But there's a spectrum of it. I feel like, yeah, I sometimes feel like in the history of storytelling, women haven't allowed to be flawed and interesting at the same time. Because Roxana is very, very interesting, even though you're like, oh my god, yeah. um, that and wasn't can, a very yeah. nice thing to do. But usually you're, you're kind of like yeah. gripped by it because it's yeah. it's an interesting and ultimately story. a character should just be a character, yeah. and there are lots of um fanta- you know the the kind
1: of the baddie that we love to hate. Mm. Um or also the yeah. I guess I'm a big fan of villains being Absolutely. empathizable with. Yeah. Because I think what's
0: the point if you can it's too easy to write them off if yeah. they're just. It's not good storytelling though either, yeah, is it? Yeah, yeah. If, like the idea of the cackling like <laughs> Exposition loving villain yeah. is like ah, ah, Like but nobody cares nobody, about it. Yeah, nobody cares about that because it's not a real thing. Yeah, nobody is <coughs> inherently black. It's not black and white like yeah. good and evil. No, everyone exists in shades of grey, mm. and and even the people who are like truly really bad people mm. in their head they believe they're right. Yeah. So yeah, the the idea of of characters having a binary of like good and bad that's not interesting storytelling because it's not reflective of, yeah. of life exactly. I also think there's a danger in, I don't really like the notion of of
1: true evil maybe <laughs> call it that, because <laughs> I think you always need to believe that you could become that person, that yeah. you could make the bad decision, you could make the hurtful decision.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise how would we police ourselves <laughs> I was listening to a podcast where Kenneth Lonergan was talking um, the playwright, screenwriter, mm-hmm. don't know if you know him. The playwright primarily, but he wrote um, Manchester by the Sea and oh, okay. uh, a couple other big movies. Um, but he was talking recently about how what he would love to do is write a play to put on Broadway, because mm-hmm. he's a big Broadway guy, um, that's told entirely from the perspective of some kind of alt right nut job, but sympathetically. Oh, yeah. And then present it to all of his liberal art friends who would go see his show on Broadway and see how incensed they get, because. <laughs> That it's just never a perspective we see. Yeah. Um, but he's interested in that because because it, it ties into that idea of there is no good good and bad. Like these people mm. with questionable beliefs believe that they're right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and by because they believe they're right, they believe they're doing the good yeah. the good thing. So it's like this idea of get, inhabiting another perspective to understand it. Yeah. Um yeah. So I Which was just really is, yeah, intrigued it's so by important. that idea. Yeah. It'd be so much fun to do it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, it's awful. Though. We I, I did so for. I studied at RCS um, on the Masters in Classical and Contemporary Text, which I always find hard to say, um, and the, I, the sort of final project that we did was um, to direct a new piece of writing, um, which in my case was a play called Bubble by Kieran Hurley, which was entirely set on Facebook. Um, oh. The challenges of not having an <laughs> actual setting. <laughs> But it, it was really good fun, but it was, um, it, it, it was set entirely on Facebook, but also its real-world component was on an American high school campus, a uh, university campus, um, and it had, it had ten characters, and one of them was a young man who sort of wasn't quite alt-right at the start of the play and was by the end of it. Um, But he was also the uncool, loner guy that everyone made fun of. Mm. Um, And even just in that sort of little foray... I mean, the piece was really about freedom of speech and and what freedom of speech looks like and how complicated that is in the social media world. Mm -hmm. Um, But I found it uh, quite moving thinking about um, those characters and and that young man. Yeah. it kind of made me reflect on various real-life characters from my undergrad and my high school days. Yeah. And you just see how easy it is for, I think, particularly young men, actually, but, but young people in general who are disenfranchised and don't feel like they have a voice mm-hmm. to then to latch on to concepts like the alt-right. Oh, yeah. Um, and, I mean, it's existed in all of history. Yeah. Um, those fringe... Extremist movements on, on either side of the political spectrum um,
0: are always right with people like that that are being failed by the rest of the system. Do you think storytelling has a place in terms of... Not fixing that, but... How, well, how important do you think storytelling is in terms of communicating other perspectives and maybe fighting against this idea of disenfranchisement? Um I think it's really important. I think. Haha, ha, where'd you start? <laughs>
1: I, I think that. the I, I kind of believe in it, in that there's, there's a storytelling ecology, you call it, and it's, um, it's important, even if you're doing a play that three people are seeing in a room above a pub, it's important what stories you're putting out to the world and what slant you're putting on those stories because they ultimately contribute to the, the overall balance. Um, And and that balance of whether individuals feel heard or not. Um, I also just think that one of, from my perspective, one of the biggest problems of, I guess, maybe my generation is a lack of empathy. Mm. Um, And I think that that is maybe partly to do with the way that the internet and... And also just the massive information that we're exposed yeah. to now, instant communication and masses of information to process. Um, and I don't, I don't know what else it's related to, but I feel like there's lots of willingness to argue about things, yeah, and talk about ideas, and not a lot of willingness to be empathetic to people that have different viewpoints, yeah. Um, and I think that storytelling can do that. Um, I hope
0: that... I've often wondered about the value of liveness as well in storytelling. Like, There's something so special about theatre in that respect because it gets people in a room at the same time. They're experiencing Mm -hmm. that moment together. I guess where we fall down is that theatre still suffers from being quite an elitist art form in the sense that you probably won't get many people that aren't part of your echo chamber in that room unless you're doing the legwork to get out there yeah. and take it to places where it doesn't normally go um, which is a, I suppose a whole separate topic for discussion <laughs> Yeah. Um, but on that thing you were saying about nobody's listening, I think that's true on both sides, I think mm. you know, liberal, arty leftist people are quite often as guilty, I mean I've done it I've yeah, certainly completely. just kind of gotten into a shouting match and then realised, checked myself halfway through and gone, I'm not listening to this person yeah. Um so yeah, that lack of I think that lack of empathy and lack yeah. of hearing what the other person is saying goes both ways. Yeah. And it's hard because
1: some of that ties into um, like that concept of—I uh, don't particularly love the phrase, but the, the microaggression yeah. concept. <laughs> That's such a millennial phrase. I know. Microaggression. In fact, <laughs> um, the first two, few times I heard it, I thought the phrase was so ridiculous that I didn't even bother finding out what it meant. <laughs> I thought just, it was like, a science, science is thing. At,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was a science thing at first. Just like yeah. that sounds scientific. Like no, it's not. Yeah. But actually, it makes a lot of sense because it's that thing that if you are dealing with the same. Sexist comments, for example, every day, yeah. and you're not, you know, the f- the fifth time that someone says something very small to you, you're maybe going to react in a huge and unempathetic way, and not want to not want to spend your time patiently talking to the person because yeah. you've already heard it, however many times that day. Um, whereas to them, that then seems like a oh yeah, an unfair,
0: not listening or an unfairly large reaction. It's linked to a, a problem or not not a problem it's not a problem per se, but it's something that's a, a minor frustration with the persistent and nasty project is mm. that we very rarely have men in the room, and I think at the moment it can be we don't have we don't have people who could be our allies in the room they are listening to us, mm-hmm. which is why I'm excited about our Have Your Say event that's coming up this month, but it's all, good, it's all going to be women. Yeah. So part of me believe, part of me thinks this will be wonderful and it will be a great sharing space and it will be wonderfully cathartic and we'll all drink wine and it's December and hurrah, but... <laughs> but uh, without our, our male peers, colleagues and allies in the room hearing yeah. what our frustrations are, it, that makes me a little bit sad because yeah. I don't... I can't... If, if they're just assuming they know everything, I feel that that's a bit... Incorrect. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's re- maybe edit this because I'm not sure that made sense.
1: <laughs> no, no, it totally makes sense. I think it's really, it's really difficult, and I think about this a, lot, because it's also it's not always a very popular. It's that thing of like, why do we have to talk about the men? Yeah. Why do we have to give more time to the men? <laughs> and I, I for empathise that, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and completely feel that, often as well. Um, but I also acknowledge that I guess women can get really far down the line of making the world a better place, mm-hmm. but if we don't stop the negative behaviour that exists in men right now, yeah. um, or if men don't stop the negative behaviour that exists in men right now, then that's always going to be a problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't quite know... I know that there needs to be some kind of joint effort. Yeah. Um, But even finding the language to propose that joint effort is quite difficult because because everyone's got a lot of feelings about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's right and that's fair, but it it makes it difficult.
0: It does make it difficult. And I think it's also that thing of where a lot of what our audience with Persistent and Nasty appreciate is the fact that they're in a room... With other women, mm-hmm. um, other trans women, other non-binary people, mm-hmm. people who are on their wavelength and are broadly experiencing the yeah. same frustrations they are, and that feels like a safe space. Yeah. And I get that. I really do get that. And there's still there aren't
1: actually that many um, female-identifying safe spaces that are inclusionary of what of of everything. All because there are so many strands within that, and there's mm-hmm. so many different but linked issues for the people that will identify with that, um, that that's a really amazing thing, and and we don't have enough of those still. Yeah. Um, So you can completely see why then a lot of people don't want to have to give some
0: of that over to... Of course, yeah. Yeah,
1: I I think there has to be a... It's a bit like how I think that there are for a lot of these issues, long-term and short-term strategies, and you have to employ both. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we need to make space for all of these things. So there needs to be the, the safe spaces and there needs to be the, the spaces where you don't have to give up a platform yeah. to, to male speakers
0: and thinkers. But then there also needs to be... I think I would appreciate... I think there's a balance to be struck, and what I would appreciate, particularly in the persistent and nasty rooms, because I, you know I have—I can't speak for other um, platforms or initiatives that are similar to ours, but I can certainly speak for mine, and that is, I want them in the room. They don't need to speak. They don't need to have a go at the talking stick. Yeah. But being there and listening, I think—I yeah. think our male colleagues really underestimate how valuable most of us would find that. Yeah. And I, and I do get it. I do get that there's this fear of, well, it, this isn't for me yeah. and I should take a step back. And would people get pissed off if I show up? I'm like, I cannot stress enough how yeah. it's the opposite. Yeah, for me, yeah. anyway, but then I, that's me. I can't speak for everybody who would be yeah, in that room. Completely.
1: I'd almost like to see the, sort of equivalent, the persistent and nasty men's group <laughs> that go and meet and have a feminist book club and then come and listen to... That would be wonderful, chat, but also
0: go and have their own conversation about making their own changes. In conversation, I wonder if they do them. that. I wonder if the men folk are doing that. They're getting into the, Maybe. the pub together and like discussing I'd like the second sex by Simone de Beauvoir or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd but love to I know mean, where, to where and fair, infiltrate.
1: And to be fair, there are lots of men I know that would do that. Oh. I don't. They're not. I don't think, as far as I know. I think they're doing it quietly in their bedrooms by themselves, but.
0: There's a part weird. of me
1: that feels like well, reading, reading Simone's before. Yeah, quietly <laughs> in the bedroom by themselves. <laughs> you can edit that bit. <laughs> Probably uh, won't. <laughs> <laughs> it's comedy goals. Um,
0: yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Can we talk a bit about diversity? Yeah! <laughs> yeah! yeah. Who, um, and I don't just mean in terms of what's relevant to women, because mm-hmm. obviously we have a big, big casting and diversity mm-hmm. and playwright issue here in Scotland, um, because Scotland's very white. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, Can you talk a bit about that in your experience as a director and a theatre maker? And
1: yeah. So, I guess, for me, I always feel like I have to start with with who I am, I guess, because I think I have a quite a specific experience. Probably not that specific a viewpoint, but a specific experience of it. Um, so, I... I'm Scottish. Um, I've lived in Glasgow since I was one. Um, but my dad is English and my mum is Indian. Again, with it, talking about feminism and talking about diversity and talking about class um, and all of the problems in between, I, it, I think that um, the idea of, of specific privilege um, is quite important to me, that we can we can acknowledge our, our own privileges. So I'm the first person to say that I touch wood thus far in life. Um, I've led a relatively privileged life um, and actually haven't had to deal with, compared to a lot of people, the worst end of, of sexism, racism, all of those things. Um, but I'm obviously aware of it and obviously think about it. Um, and uh, I found this year quite interesting because um, I guess as I very slowly chip away at the cold face of that is my career. <laughs> 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 I, this year, and I guess it's probably just because of the, the, the social climate at the moment as well, people have started asking my opinion on mm. things like diversity and things like casting more. Like mm. I just did.
0: Like you just did. <laughs> which is great.
1: Um, but it suddenly made me be like, oh, I, I am... I, yeah, I'm the I'm I, becoming a becoming representative of that. <laughs> um, which is funny because based on... I mean, I don't know what people say about me behind closed doors, but based Nothing on... Nothing but wonderful things. <laughs> but based on the privilege that I have experienced, I often think of myself as, as white, mm. essentially. In a sense, in terms of, um, in terms of the, the difficulties that I know that peers and other people have faced. And it's not as simple as that. Like, that's a slightly flippant thing to say. Um, but particularly in this kind of context, I think it's important that, that we can only be representative of, of what we're representative of. Mm.
0: Um,
1: that said, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's really, I mean, I, I, so I said that thing about short term and long term um, strategies earlier on. Um, I think that's one thing that, I, that I, I've heard people talk about it a little bit, but not so much. And I think maybe we could do with chatting a little bit more about um, in institutions mm. and, and just among uh, freelance directors as well um, that often you, you go into a process and you think, great, I'm going to try my best to make this a more diverse cast and then you start the, the, the casting process and I've, I've just finished um, I guess the, the, the most funded casting process that I have thus far experienced which was great um, mm. because I had access to Spotlight for the first time, <laughs> and somebody else wrote to all the agents, and there was money to have hire someone to come in and, and read at the auditions and things like that. Um, so one of the issues is just that when you're necessarily working with your limited peer group, yeah. which a lot of us do earlier on, um, then it's all just a bit hit and miss. Um, what, as soon as you get that bit of funding, then you then you run into the problems of. Um, how do we find these people? Um, are they in the drama school? I mean, some of them are, but mm-hmm. some of them aren't. Um, and have they all gone to London? Which I
0: found... Which, the answer is, is yes. totally happening. Yeah. Um,
1: but if they've all gone to London, then why have they all gone to London?
0: Well, funny you should say that, because the last time we did a casting within Persistent and Nasty, which was particularly focused on... Um, casting B-A-M-E actors, mm-hmm. uh, the anecdotal evidence that came back to us through our actor friends um, was that, oh, yeah, I've moved to London because nobody's writing stories for me in Scotland yeah. and nobody's casting me in Scotland. Exactly. Whether, I mean, uh, whether that's... <sighs> yeah, I was about to say whether that's changing or not, I don't know, but I feel like... I don't know where... <sighs> What's, what's the word I'm looking for, I don't know where that comes from because I wouldn't say that most mm. of the stories I see on the Scottish stage necessarily have to be played by white people, yeah. do you know what I mean, there's nothing yeah, a, yeah, in, yeah. in recent, the five, last five years of me seeing theatre in Scotland I wouldn't say oh yeah well that person definitely had to be white Yeah. very rarely would that be the case yeah, yeah. so part of me is a bit like well why is that happening I think it's a mixture of things so I guess
1: for me there needs to be a mixture of there's loads and loads of theatre that could be played by anyone yeah. Um. So in those scenarios, we just need to start actually casting anyone mm-hmm. and not casting the same kinds of faces, the same kind of bodies all the time. Um, but then there is also a thing about, I think how much you feel as an artist connected to the industry that you're working in, but then also the, the next step of that is, as, um, <laughs> as the local populace, how much you or interested in engaging with theatre, depending on what stories are being told. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, I... I, You know, the work that I make is not all about being a (laughs) half-Indian... Half English, Scottish person. Why not? <laughs> Should be making exclusively that, right? <laughs> right? Except for maybe if I ever want to cast myself in anything, because I can't do accent. <laughs> <laughs> gonna write that period drama one day. Yep. Um, yeah, there's lots of things. I think we need to be telling stories that are representative of who is on the streets outside. Yes. And I don't think that Scottish theatre is necessarily doing that right now. No. I think it maybe is starting to more. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, the people that are playing the roles that everyone could play need to be representative of who's on the street outside. Yeah. Which is not quite ha- Again, it's, it is improving slowly. And then the artists who are artists from different backgrounds need to be able to feel like they can make yeah. the political self representational. Yeah, that, yeah that's that thing. Well, we'll um, go with it. <laughs> work about themselves. Or they
0: can make whatever work They want. Yeah. Um and it needs to be all of those things. I don't normally believe in trickle down economics, as <laughs> it were, but I do think this is maybe one area where yeah. that might be effective in the sense that certain efforts have to be made up top yeah. to then slowly be felt down yeah. at a community level. I think Again, in terms of the, I keep saying this and then not finishing
1: the thought, but in terms of the <laughs> short term and the long term thing, um, I think like quotas are never a long term solution to something. But mm-hmm. I think they can be useful, um, and there's something which, to the best of my knowledge, is maybe happening in film and TV yeah, a bit more. I think so, yeah. But not necessarily in theatre. I don't know if that might be. I think it, I think there are certain cases where that might be a useful thing. Um, if you look at, for example, an entire season in a theatre building. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that having a quota might not be a bad thing. A lot of double negatives. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I get you. I feel you. Uh, But actually, I think some of the long-term things are almost more important. So putting money now into touring to places, to communities that we're not necessarily touring to, Mm -hmm. to going into schools, to doing a good quality, genuine... Version of the education remit of shows. Yeah. Um, I mean, somebody said something the other day to me about how, um, how if you are an artist from a, a diverse background or, or from any unrepresented group, then you do become a role model if yeah. you want to. Um, and while I believe that you shouldn't have to mm-hmm. just because you happen to be an artist that ticks one of those boxes. Yeah. If you're willing to, then that's also an amazing thing. If you, yeah. you know, if you can go be the half endition person that yeah. chats to a bunch of school kids, then there might just be a few people in there that didn't think that that haven't seen someone like them in one of these roles before, yeah. And then think that they can do it, um, and then that becomes also about um, changing the demographic demographic <coughs> of drama schools to be more representative mm-hmm. of. The community that we see on the street, yeah. Um, in the long term, um, I think that a l- I think a lot of the change that we want to see only happens if you start with the five to
0: fifteen-year-olds oh, yeah. now, and then you're going to see it in in five to ten years' time. Yeah, you have to go into communities and schools that aren't well resourced or are in areas that are, you know, slightly less affluent and. You need to say, here's how exciting theatre can be and how it is absolutely for you if you want it to be. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I completely get that that's... I think the will is there in Scotland, but mm. I, we're just hampered like we always have been by the fact that there's no money. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, in that way, I agree. Like, I think there is a triple down element to it. I think there's also something about, for people that are in the industry now, about not being afraid or not... Being willing to say that you don't necessarily know how to do it and that you're going to make mistakes, Mm -hmm. but it's better to, within reason, to try and get things not quite perfect yeah, um, than to not do anything at all.
0: Of course. Because I think if Um, we all just hung around not doing anything or being paralysed by our fear that we might get it wrong, then nothing would ever happen. Yeah, Uh, I would rather battle in and get it... Yeah. Like... 60% 60% right, 40% wrong, and then yeah, try and fix yeah, it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> then, um, you know, yeah. not do anything at
1: all. And that counts for things like um, being a bit willing to hedge your bets and take, a, take slightly longer casting. Yeah. Uh, spend a bit more money than you maybe should have on, on the casting process or the finding designers process because you went and spoke to more people and you went... Yeah. And use slightly different resources, yeah. Then you might. Then is the easy route.
0: Yeah, and I think everyone at every level in our industry has a responsibility to this. And it frustrates me that it seems to be a lot of the community of artists who are grafting from job to job that seem to be having these discussions in any real way mm. on an everyday basis. Like I feel like, you know, we we I mean we know like not to put too fine a point on it, but we know there's a culture of casting the same people on over over and over again in Scotland. Mm. Casting agents and directors send in their their most trusted people. And I get that because yeah. there's a livelihood on the line for them too. Yeah. So if there's only a bit of money going and the thing needs to sell and the audiences need to come and see it, they'll send in their their A squad. And that tends to be the people who get the jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who tend to be, by and large, white. So this is this is not this is not me pointing blame anywhere, but there I do feel there needs to be more of a concerted effort across the board. Mm. Um, so casting agents need to be on it, the casting directors need to be on it, yeah, and our institutions. But again, yeah, it comes down to money, I suppose. Money thing. Ultimately, also becomes a
1: lot about the ongoing problem of how do we get people to come to the theatre, and
0: how do we open up our buildings to a, a larger community. Yeah. Um, but. I mean, yeah. when we were doing the second Persistent Anastie, that was the one that we really wanted to focus on the issues that we're just talking about right now. Um, and through the conversations we had in the lead-up to that, trying to cast the script reading, et cetera, et cetera, things we were hearing were things like people of colour in local communities in the city, the city of Glasgow, the city of Edinburgh, don't, wouldn't set foot in the Lyceum or the SITs because they don't think it's... They don't think what's on offer there is for them. Yeah. Like that was a bit of anecdotal yeah,
1: yeah, evidence yeah. that
0: we were given a story, you know, people telling us that. Yeah. Um, and that the reason for that is complex and layered, and yeah. there are many contributing factors. But just hearing that was really sad.
1: Yeah. I, mean, I think that's why you can't. It is impossible to talk about any of these issues in isolation. You have to keep oh, yeah. talking about it in, the, in an intersectional way. Um. You can't fix a single one of those no. problems by just fixing it. You have to. You have to look at how. I guess class particularly plays into issues mm. that are related to
0: gender and related mm. to race. Um, class felt like a, a hot button topic uh, for us when we we were going to do a persistent analysis that focused on class back in October of 2018, but um, we lost our venue at the time the CCA because they were going through all of the upheaval caused by the fire so we just had to shelf it Mm -hmm. and uh, but in the lead up to that people were very vocal Mm. about how wanting to know how we were going about making sure that we were checking the right boxes and reaching the right communities. so people were very um Vocal and public on our social media platforms, saying, "Well, what are you doing to make this accessible for yeah, working-class yeah, yeah, yeah. artists? And how are you reaching these communities? And you're charging three pounds for a ticket—that's still too much." And mm-hmm. you know, we came under fire in a way yes. that I did not expect. Not well. I mean, I always expect it a little bit, but like when we did the gender spectrum, for example, mm-hmm. I kind of expected more people to, because obviously we know there's a, a very polarised debate going on about. Trans rights and what have you mm-hmm. um, So I expected us to come under fire A little bit for that Yeah, And we didn't, people were very supportive Which was wonderful Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we, when we started talking about class People were very vocal about that yeah. So it's felt, for me, I want to hold off On doing one that focuses on that Until we have the right conditions And yeah, ideally kind of the conditions it. would be Engaging with the right communities And having a bit of money behind us To support those communities Because I feel like it's really quite... I feel like we can't do something where we're asking a writer to contribute, mm. a working class writer to contribute if we don't have a stipend to pay a writer.
1: Yeah. yeah For example, yeah. things like that. Yeah.
0: I don't know, maybe I'm overthinking it.
1: No, I think it's, it's, it's really, yeah, it's really tricky because we all operate in the situation where you, there isn't money, Yeah. but you have to try and be as ethical as you possibly can. And there's a part of me that feels like it's better to not to postpone for too long yeah so the, the my hope is we happen. can do it in February yeah but I think but I think that's absolutely right that if you can if you're in a position where you can do where you can be ethical
0: oh yeah absolutely it's <laughs> the better oh I should point out um, we're not going ah, everyone's yelling at us this is too yeah, difficult yeah, yeah, and we've just yeah, yeah. decided not no, to completely. do it yeah. um, we are going to do it we just have to shelve it until yeah. the conditions are right and we are we are doing our bit to make sure that we are best servicing the people for whom the event is focused on yeah but yeah you're right it's a tapestry class yeah. Social, socio economic background. It's <laughs> uh, Creative Scotland buzzword, isn't it? That's the oh, general generally. funding buzzword. Uh, complex. Yes, they all
1: Fold into each other. <laughs> what else do
0: we want to talk about?
1: I don't know. What else do we normally talk about when we have each other? I
0: know, I was going to say, we're not really like, we put all of this right in the pub. On a fairly regular basis, yeah. over wine, and now I've hit record it's the on lack a device. Of wine. Is it the lack of wine shelf? Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> Should I get us some wine? It's <laughs> much easier. Yeah. Do you want to pause there, and we'll get wine, and we'll be convenient. We don't put that in the recording. Absolutely, gonna put that in. The <laughs> She's so nasty. This is us. We have wine now. That's great. <laughs> I find my podcasting ability, like, just gets exponentially better once I have a wine in my hand. <laughs> I make no promises. Fair enough. So let's talk about Modest Predicament, your theatre company. Because uh, you guys got to be honourable mention in the... Hot 100, the list Hot 100 publicity this year? We did. Uh, in the
1: ones to watch for 2019, no uh, I to add. <laughs> uh,
0: not in the actual list. Um,
1: but no, which was was very, very unexpected and very, very nice. So, Modest Predicament is myself and Jenny Gilveer, um, and we both um, produce and direct a bit and occasionally do a bit of writing. Um, and we kind of, I guess, like lots of theatre companies do came together in a slightly haphazard way where we were, we were actually teaching a, a kind of community centre drama class for young people um, and that made us want to make a family friendly show uh, and we were both really into puppets. So uh, we decided to make a show for the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, um, which in, I think this is 2016? Probably, if I had to guess, <laughs> um, all, all the years kind of blurred together. Um, so we made our first show together, which was called Erin, Errol, and the Earth Creatures, and was kind of like a sort of updated folk tale for kids now. And we were very much like, we'll we'll come up with a company name, and if we never want to work together at, again at the end of the fringe, which is perfectly plausible when oh, you're at the it's fringe, common, I think, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, then no harm done but if we still want to keep making work together then we'll keep making work together um, so we did um, with the slight complication that I was on a masters for a year straight after that and she is on a masters now so <laughs> uh, quite, we, we've been a bit of a slow burn um, <laughs> but in our spare time we run this company
0: um, so you'll be like a whiskey or a good wine it got to take time to mature yeah fingers That's crossed <laughs> <laughs> Um <laughs> So yeah, and I
1: guess that the common interest in in making family-friendly work that was quite visual and that had puppets in it was where we started off, but for both of us, that's not the only kind of work that we want to make. The first three shows that we've made together have been very much in that ballpark, so we did another show at the Fringe, um, just gone, called The Dragon and the Whales, which does what it says on the tin. It's about a dragon and some whales. Um, and it had
0: an adorable dragon puppet, didn't
1: it? And it did have an adorable uh, dragon puppet. If um, I do say so myself, <laughs> they were um, a lot of our puppets, both for cheapness and because we like the idea that the people that see our shows will go home and raid their cupboard and bin. Um, a lot of our puppets are made out of recycled objects and household objects, and in in the case of the dragon and the whales, they were very obviously household objects. So our, our dragon was a tumble dryer tube yeah. with a little lampshade on the front <laughs> uh, and then a pair of wings that were made out of umbrellas. So cute. Um, yeah, they were great. Um, <laughs> Emma, okay. our wonderful, wonderful puppet designer, um, made the puppets for that. And... Um, and then we also did a show at the Hidden Door Festival last year, um, which Jenny and I performed, to much hilarity. Uh, it was more—it's kind of an installation um, with our new baby, which is our overhead projector. Um, money well spent. Money well spent. Uh, it's very heavy, though. <laughs> and I live in fear of the day when the, we do have a spare bulb, but I really fear the day that I actually have to change the bulb because I don't know how to do it.
0: And they're also quite expensive, those projector bulbs, aren't they? Did um, I make that up?
1: The one that I bought wasn't very expensive, oh, but I'm not 100% sure it's the right one. All oh, right, <laughs> sure. So that was, that was collected interviews with people that live in Leith and some archive um, interviews that we found um, with people talking about the 1920s in Leith, mm-hmm. roughly 1920s, 1930s. Um, and it was kind of an installation with um, images and, and shadow puppetry in it. So they're, they're all kind of like in a similar ballpark. Um, uh, and the show that we were just talking about history of a life now called Roxana is also under under the banner of Borickman so I guess um, Jenny and I have had lots of fraught conversations about how we know we know what glues our work together and the things mm. that we 're interested in, and a lot of that is about um, slightly alternate narratives um, and, and and a really strong belief I guess in, in also what we were talking about earlier about. Um, about what stories you put into the greater story ecology of the world are yeah. important, um, and that they do shape our opinion of ourselves and, and that that 's a really important tool right now yeah um, and I think for me as well, maybe a, a a sort of sense of trying to encourage critical thought. <laughs> It's something that I sort of cling to a bit as well. Mm.
0: Um,
1: but we did, as I'm sure lots of people do, have a lot of conversations about how do we need to define ourselves as really specifically X type of theatre, particularly when, when you start making family work. Yeah. The audience the, the audiences that came to see Erin Errol, and the Earth Creatures could not come and see Roxanne. <laughs> right. Got it. Yeah. Those are very different shows. The audiences that saw Roxana could go see her in her earlier pictures. <laughs> but ultimately, I think we were a bit like, well, we've got nothing to lose. Yeah. Um, we'll just keep doing everything that we want to do until we can't or someone tells us not to. Yeah. Um, and I, that's sort of slowly becoming my ethos for everything, I think.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good one. And um, I think, yeah, when you're. I, I mean, I've run theatre companies in my time, and the first theatre company I ran, we had no particular remit we just I mean the work we made was like we veered wildly between doing a fringe show that was all about the Marx Brothers to the next thing we did was about enhanced interrogation methods where we waterboarded someone on stage (laughs) and which was also site-specific I might add so like we could not we went from vaudeville family fun yeah to that and uh, it didn't well I was going to say it didn't do us any harm but the company no longer exists but that (laughs) for a number of reasons we won't discuss today. Um, so I think there's this idea of, like, theatre... Making theatre is kind of a bit of an mm. evolutionary process where you just kind of follow, yeah. follow the trail a little bit.
1: Yeah, and I, I guess I certainly spent a long time, and still, to some extent, spent a lot of time trying to work out what the rules are. Not so much in terms of actually making them work, because sometimes that's the easy bit, relatively speaking you know it's joyous to be in a rehearsal room and spend six or eight hours actually making work yeah all the stuff around that to do with etiquette and selling yeah. yourself and I making contacts like that yeah yeah it, it can be really easy to get bogged down in in trying to understand how that functions yeah but part of what i think i found most useful is just finding a way to do it Yeah. To to make things happen
0: and then sort of
1: working out what yeah uh, all of that how it works
0: afterwards. Totally. For me it was always about the ideas and creating the opportunity for myself to make Mm -hmm. work and either perform it or get to write it or whatever it may be, whatever Mm -hmm. was lighting my candle at that particular moment in time. But then the the producing stuff and the audio demographic stuff and all of that admin, the business side of it. The business side is the bit that sucks your soul a little bit, but it's a necessary evil if you want to kind of be in charge of your own destiny.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: And I mean, I guess the caveat to that is is
1: what we were talking about earlier in terms of all the the myriad of different privileges that people have. Um, You know, I, Jenny and I have both worked multiple jobs and crazy, crazy combinations of things in order to make some of those shows work. Yeah. But I've also been living at home for the last three odd years because... I have kind parents and they live in Glasgow. Yeah. Um, So I think I'm always, in terms of talking about the evolution of that company, not that it's evolved very far yet, but
0: the baby evolution of that company, I think it's always helpful to remember Absolutely, and this actually makes me think of coming back to when we were talking about class early Um, on. I am also from a relatively privileged background and, you know, I've worked... I've never not had a job since the day I was sixteen. Yeah. And particularly as I moved through becoming a freelance artist, I've had three minimum three at any given time. So I have worked my butt off, but I I am lucky enough to be in a position to even have those jobs or to have a support network that allows me to go and make theatre. Yeah. So sometimes I have this like I hear this a lot at um, panel discussions and development events where it's like get out there make your own work and it's like that is only possible if you if you are privileged enough to. Carve yeah, that path for yourself. So hard, and even just the the you know
1: we all have crises of confidence all the time. But you have to have a certain amount of belief in yourself somewhere, yeah, um, or belief that you belong in that world mm-hmm. to some, even if it's a minute extent, to be able to say, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm going to write a show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to write a show. I'm going to totally. Or even even just things like. I mean, having, having got the education in the first place to do things like last year, the job that I did, um, which was both a blessing and nearly killed me, um, <laughs> was a freelance admin job for another theatre company. Yeah. Um, which wasn't the hardest job in the world, but arguably I got because I could present myself in a certain way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, even, even the belief to be able to say, I'm not going to go and get a stable job, yeah. even though I could, I'm going to do X, Y, Z, silly thing,
0: while also... Play me, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that only gets increasingly more terrifying. A balancing act as you get older. Mm-hmm. Um, I am now a young thirty-three, mm-hmm. a <laughs> young at heart, thirty-three, going to be thirty-four. And I know that's still young, but like the idea of working freelance jobs and yeah. contracts while still trying to juggle pursuing being an actor and making my own theatre and whatever uh, else you know comes my way that I've refused to say no to. Mm-hmm that gets more and more terrifying as the years go by yeah. because it's it's an economic minefield and it's not easy for everyone to do that. Some people just are not able to do that mm-hmm. because of their circumstances. Yeah. And that comes back to the theatre world being, at the moment, the realm of the privileged. Yeah, And I think it's... I hate it, actually, when I hear this at panel events, mm-hmm. go see as much work as you can, go make your own work yeah. like, do you have any idea how expensive theatre is? Yeah. I know you do because you're not daft yeah, yeah, yeah. so it just feels like that's if you're going to say that, at least add the caveat of yeah we know it's expensive so yeah. maybe we should all club together and work out how we can and release some tickets Yeah, because yeah. let's
1: face it, none of the theatres that are
0: the, the old
1: three tiered <laughs> theatres I don't think they're ever full. No. Or they're very, very seldom full. Yeah. Um, So to... I mean, things like the the new um, uh, directors group in Scotland um, has had a a great group of people have banded together Mm -hmm. and been uh, been trying to say to theatres, are are, are there a few spare tickets? Because we're all budding young directors and we're all going broke seeing all these shows. Um, But I feel I'm sure that... There could be more ticket schemes going Absolutely. on. Uh, not, not just for people that are... Again, not just for the people that are already in the industry yeah, or at the bottom of the
0: industry, but for the people that aren't there yet that mm-hmm. might be, yep. if you give them a ticket to see something. Totally. Um, I think ticket schemes uh, like that could even apply to working on diversity in your audience demographics. Like, mm-hmm. This is going to sound really random, but what about... Ticket schemes where it's £5 or even £3 tickets to some of the big main house shows. Like if you're doing an Arthur Miller, or even if you're not, even if you're yeah. doing something really exciting like um, like A Restless House, like something really exciting like that, mm-hmm. and you went to, like, I don't know, the kids working in the local shops or pre-mark yeah. and say, There's 10 tickets here, would any of your staff be yeah. up for seeing it? I know that sounds really weird, but it's like it's a sort of different way of accessing a demographic. Yeah, totally. I don't know. I, I think there's maybe something in that because um,
1: I feel like you relatively often hear particularly in circumstances where there has been some sort of scheme um, where you get the kind of like oh we never we've walked past this building 100 times and we never really realise what goes on here yeah um, you know that's not in the case of like the kings or the royal where it's very obvious that it is but yeah. it's the kind of thing that people say about tramway sometimes mm-hmm. I must say about um, platform all the time as well yeah definitely yeah um, and I also just think, part of me feels like when pre-TV and lots of film, when people were still going to lots of theatre, when, when music hall was still a thing, I feel like you went to your local, because mm. there was quite a lot of them. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that, that a lot of theatres would probably
0: be interested in. I think so. I'm I fascinated think. by the Pavilion and their demographic. Yeah. That theatre is always full. Yeah. Maybe not completely full, but like they know their audience... And yes, OK, the programming the sensitivities are entirely <laughs> different from, say, the sits or the chon, but yeah. that doesn't mean that, that can't there can't be some cooperative effort there because yeah, yeah. for a lot of people who go to the pavilion shows, that'll be the only theatre they set foot in. Mm-hmm. But by virtue of them being there at all demonstrates they enjoy live theatre. Yeah. Um, so there's and, yeah. and I think it would be very arrogant for anyone to say... A Pavilion audience member wouldn't like something that goes on at the Tron. Yeah, but I think that's nonsense. But then I mean, I, I'm not working in either theatre. I don't. I can't yeah. in any way claim to be an expert on what's going on already. If anything, yeah, on that
1: front. it's something that I think about a lot at this time of year as well because because Pancho is something that that is is like show for a lot of people that, yeah, that they'll go to one big theatre th- day yeah. of the year yeah, yeah and they won't go to the theatre the rest of the year but they will go for that and it's yes yeah,
0: the same thing they enjoy that. So why wouldn't they enjoy yeah. There's something, there's maybe like just a, a conversation that's maybe not being had. Yeah. Oh, no idea. What was I going to say? I was going to bring it back to, bring it back around to Modest Predicament. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't remember how I was going to go do that. <laughs> was it, what are we doing next? <laughs> maybe what are you doing next? What are you doing next? I've got no idea.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm trying to, trying to find a home for Roxana. Anyone Um, listening out there in the theatre world? If anyone's listening. If anyone wants a 1724 morality novel with a 21st century twist.
0: Um, How is that for an elevator pitch? There you go. There you go. Yes, we are are
1: working on further development for that. Um, And then we have various... Jenny and I like to come up with sort of five vague ideas and then (laughs) mull them over and see which one sticks or which one fits the first pot of money that comes Mm. up that we can apply for. So, yeah, we, we probably will be making another puppet show at some point soon. I'd like to make a non-family puppet show. Um, like Avenue Q. Maybe not quite like Avenue Q. No, <laughs> <laughs> don't know, it's like straight theatre, but with puppets, basically. Yeah. Bringing puppets mainstream. You're bringing puppets back. Yeah, bringing puppets back. I think <laughs> they're already back. They're quite in <laughs> vogue at the moment. <laughs> I guess the, the other... Slight dilemma for us, which again anyone that's ever made a theatre company will have, is is when, if ever, to, to become an actual company, um, and legalised then. Yeah. Um. Partly because in terms of funding, if you aren't legalised, then you that takes you out of all of the sort of charity orientated. Yeah. Um. But it can also be a bit. It's difficult to know when the right time to do it is. I think. Um. And it's a bit scary because it involves. It creates a lot like, yeah. extra amount of paperwork, mm-hmm. paperwork boards, all of that stuff. I found that. so I was, um, uh, this is a good thing to talk about. I was a <laughs> board pioneer for Stellar Quines, yes, you all were, all of last
0: year,
1: which I've just finished, and that was supremely useful. Um, I hope to do it again at some point in the future, and I hope that other cultural or well, to be honest, any organization, but let's say cultural organisations because I think that's who's going to be listening <laughs> so consider doing similar schemes because um, it's the kind of thing that in all honesty I didn't I mean I had a vague notion what a board did mm. and I knew that if we ever you know, if modest predicament survives that long and we do become a legalised company then that we'll need one and in various other situations in the future yeah, there's the likelihood that I would need to report to a board um, but it certainly wasn't something that I n- Considered that I had a skill set to contribute to. Yeah. You know um, what you mean. And it, it just sort of seemed like something that you put off and one day you understand it when you have to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the information just springs fully formed into your head yeah, at the right moment. Yeah, magically. Um, but it was really useful and it gave me a real insight into, a, um, I guess, things about. Company structure and also in terms of how the industry works, yeah, a bit of an insight into a, a, an angle of it, I guess, that I hadn't really thought about before. So um, that was super useful. And then you know, in a relatively turbulent year for the industry as a whole, yeah. Um, in terms of that Creative Scotland decision and things like that, um, it's quite it, the, as a new theatre practitioner there's also something useful and a little bit comforting about getting to see the the day-to-day processes of very established companies yeah um and how that's not always smooth sailing yeah um also but yeah i've been doing quite a lot of well not that much but a reasonable amount of trying to get um some of that logistical information from people so um the Edinburgh Company Tourists in a nutshell oh, yeah. um, who are also fantastic they are great. shout out to them <laughs> and their puppets um, <laughs> they let Jenny and I shadow their office essentially for a couple of days um, it's the kind of thing that you'll, you'll, not everyone gets excited about um, but I was like yes please
0: show me all your paperwork and it, it's really useful <laughs> I mean it really is and I think that's that I am a big Cheerleader for that kind of working, mm. of kind of going. Well, we started this process a while ago and have yeah. had to figure it out. It's not easy. Yeah. So why? It's not, and it's also not protected information. So why wouldn't you share it? Yeah. With your colleagues and peers. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's all good karma points, mate. Yeah. I think the Scottish industry is relatively good
1: and relatively generous at. Um, Having coffees with new people well, I and think it's giving advice—probably a leader in that. Yeah, in fact, yeah. Um, I certainly my experience of that has been really good. Yeah. Um, I think we've got a wonderful wee community. Yeah, but again, um, in terms of the how confident and how like deserving of that in a way—maybe deserving is the wrong word, but like entitled in a positive way.
0: Mm,
1: Any given individual who's starting out feels yeah. to that. Like I was relatively comfortable with. Emailing people knocking and not people's stories, like hello, I don't yeah. know anything. Please, please yeah. tell me what I'm meant to be doing. Um, but not everyone has that. I mean, even other people on my um, on my masters yeah. were a lot shyer about that. Um, so I do. I think there's lots of little tiny ways that that we can start letting other people know that it's a really friendly industry. Yeah. Um, so there, like, there are some companies who I know have a line on their website that says. We'd be happy to have a coffee with them. And it's no more of a commitment than what they're already doing. Yeah. Because they'd almost certainly always say yes to anyone that asked.
0: Yeah, I think we've all had that slight feeling of like, I have to, it's that fake it till you make it thing. I have to Mm -hmm. pretend I know what I'm doing, otherwise people won't take me seriously. Yeah. And then you just end up kind of fumbling in the dark. And that is the way you're more likely to make mistakes. Whereas Mm if you're just, nobody knows how to do this stuff at first. Yeah. Um, Most people I know, myself included, and people, like further down in their careers, will say, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm still figuring this out. Yeah, and I feel like it's like the Wizard of Oz.
1: Yeah, we like just need to
0: pull the curtain back a little bit and yeah. realize that we're all just there going, oh. Yeah, because actually hearing that is almost as,
1: probably definitely as useful as the actual <laughs> advice that you get because you're just like, okay, I could
0: calm down. <laughs> yeah, I can. Yeah, I can stop. Like, yeah, I can stop operating at like 100 miles an hour and. And, and in a state of pure panic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe that's what should be on everybody's website. There should be a page called Don't Panic. Yeah. And you click on that, and there's like a nice gif of a puppy or something. And then you scroll down and it's nice, We got you. Come have coffee. <laughs> like something like that. You should put that on the I'm gonna do that. I, don't so, would, I don't know if anyone would I I'd say would be very useful to have coffee with us, but <laughs> I might add it. You can you can even write that. I don't know how useful it would be, but But here's yeah. a puppy. Yeah, here's a puppy and the kettles on. Like
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we haven't talked about global warming yet.
0: Write <laughs> a show about it. a <laughs> <Right, laughs> show about global warming.
1: With puppets. My post apocalyptic
0: children's show. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> Well, oh, you were talking about happen. that the other, the other night. You wanted to do a post-apocalyptic Christmas show. Yeah. Yeah, I'm on board. I'm on board.
1: <laughs> I don't know who will take it, but um, if anyone's listening <laughs> and they want a post-apocalyptic children's show for next Christmas, maybe the Christmas after, actually. <laughs> if the world is
0: still here. the world is still here, yes. Yeah. So in conclusion... In conclusion. <laughs> uh, wonderful to have you here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's been a long time coming. Anything you'd like to add? to our, like, 12 listeners. (laughs) Um, Tell your friends so that
1: Persistent and Nasty get some more listeners. Because they're great. (laughs) Um,
0: No, not really. I have a question then. I have a good question. So our next Persistent and Nasty event is going to be in January. But the theme is hope for the future. Oh, what a good theme. Very broad. There's no specific... Criteria beyond that. Mm -hmm. Um, Writers are just being asked to respond to that phrase. Yeah. And however, in whichever way they interpret that. So I guess what I am asking you uh, to conclude our little chat is what's your hope for the future? I know. I'm like a pessimistic optimist. (laughs) (laughs) I guess.
1: I mean, people, I guess. Uh, I think that people have caused all the problems and only people can <laughs> fix all the problems. Well, I, no, do you know what? I guess to repeat myself, I think that empathy and not being afraid to, I guess, like be honest about our differences, but um, work with those, particularly in terms of a sense of, of what individual privileges are and how specific that they can be. Um, is going to be hugely important to the conversations that we have in the the immediate future. Um, There's a Maya Angelou quote that's one of my favourite quotes, and I'm going to get it wrong, (laughs) but to paraphrase, hope for the best, prepare for the worst, something like because somebody always has it better than you, but somebody also has it worse. Something like that. It's Something. better written than that, obviously, because
0: I'm not Maya Angelou. Um, well, when we put this out, maybe we'll include the actual quote. Yeah, maybe. you. I'll find, it's written down on a piece of paper in my room. <laughs> it's on my wall. In your untidy room. In my untidy
1: room, that's why. I don't know what it says. <laughs> but um, but I don't know. I, like, I, I feel really dim and gloom a lot at the moment. Um, and like I think I was saying to you the other day, I'd sort of half expect myself to turn into a bit of a... Um, not quite Bear grills level, but <laughs> <laughs> sort of with a, a, an emergency bag packed in oh, a bunker be a, somewhere. A, a
0: survivalist. A survivalist. Yeah.
1: Um, I don't know. I'm probably. I, I don't think I'd be very good at defending myself. <laughs> um, maybe I to start going to the gym. I don't know. Anyway, I. the, 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 the mo- I, well, I guess what I'm actually saying is the most pessimistic part of me, that sort of <laughs> believes in the apocalypse, um, also feels like. The worst version of the world that I believe in is that we have to do as much as we can to make our ideas and our society as good as possible before everything falls apart. So that if some humans survive, <laughs> this is my really pessimistic part. But if some humans survive and there's like new society in the future, mm-hmm. that the idea like it's important how far we get right now because yeah. that's what I want to survive.
0: Um, good ideas and empathy so that's not really very hopeful but <laughs> <laughs> no but it also is at the same time uh, it also is at the same time and um, you, I guess if we were to sum it up your hope for the future yeah. is that even if it ends up we're all mm. fucked mm. you hope that those who are doing good things just now Leave enough of a mark.
1: Yeah, but. But there's going to be a coven of, of women that survived the apocalypse. <laughs> they're going to be in your doomsday bunker, and they're going to they? <laughs> they're going to be in my doomsday bunker. Um, women and men, oh, no, but yes. they're gonna have, have, they're gonna have been in the persistent and nasty <laughs> men and women's groups, right?
0: And they're gonna have a good set of ideas to start a new society with. Excellent. Maybe that's what go. we should do then. We should just start stockpiling now for that really... Maybe I should uh, make that Hollywood film. Yeah, a really liberal, uh, like artsy, leftist <laughs> Doomsday Bunker. Um, I mean, I would invest in that. <laughs> if I had any money to invest. What would be your Doomsday Bunker board game? I have no idea. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's a really difficult question. That was the difficult question? Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: What would your doomsday oh, for a game be? I'd probably be fairly classic with it and go Monopoly. I was going to say Monopoly, but I don't really want to take the capitalist, capitalist society, society into the doomsday. the doomsday bunker. Fair enough, that's a good Much point. Much as I enjoy, but What Monopoly? about the Game of Life? I don't think I've ever played that. No, I've never played that either. I was just <laughs> throwing it in there. Um, what would be a good doomsday bunker game? Scrabble. Yeah. Maybe it's got to be Scrabble. Scrabble. Keep, keep people's keep mind vocabulary. Yeah, up. keep keep people's minds active. Trivial Pursuit.
1: I mean, that would be. <laughs> you could write like a really intense version of Trivial Pursuit that just had loads of information hidden in it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I feel like this is a good place to wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> On Shilpa's. Uh, Liberal Arts Doomsday Bunker Um, So uh, just before we go Have you got anything to plug? Can we get you on social media? Where can we find you? Um, You can
1: You can find me on the interwebs The website for the company is www.modestpredicament.co.uk That's right I said all the W's (laughs) Um, And I am also on Facebook And on Twitter Although I'm not a very interesting person on Twitter But if you post something interesting I'll like it
0: um, I'm Shilpati Highland, the only one. <laughs> the one and only. And we'll let you know about um, doomsdayartproject.com. So you'll see it on a crowdfunder one day soon. <laughs>